0: friends. <laughs> Good morning, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that fun stuff. Uh, We're going to take our offering, so ushers, come on down, and as we do, uh, I'm going to pray. If you're not prepared to give, you came, you're like, oh no, offering, please don't worry about it. This is something we do as a church family, part of our worship and life together, uh, as we give and and partner in ministry together. So uh, let's pray and do the offering, and then we'll jump into uh, today's message. So uh, God, thanks for your blessings, especially during this Christmas season, where where we are reminded of the ultimate blessing you've given us through the birth and coming of your son Jesus to give us life and life forever. So, Lord, as we give, we give out of hope, we give out of joy, and we give out of a um, a, a knowledge that our giving goes to make ministry happen in very real ways through this church in Burlington and beyond. Thank you, Lord, and we give to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to highlight one thing uh, before we get to the message and that is uh, something that um, was mentioned in the announcements, uh, Night to Shine. We're rounding into the new year 2024 and very quickly Night to Shine is upon us. Coming just It's just about a month away where um, we're going to be hosting here at, at Essex a uh, this big, fun, really important event that we've been doing for years and um, for years it's been such a success because of your engagement in it. And um, we are in a place right now where in order for this event to be successful and to be everything it can be is we still need some of you to sign on and uh, plug in, especially in the role of buddy for the evening. Uh, Buddies, you are paired up with a guest and you get to spend the night dancing and laughing and eating and just celebrating together. And uh, it really is uh, the key position of the night. And not only um... If you do it, will you be a blessing to the person you are with, but you will indeed be blessed uh, through the event and the relationship you form and the fun you have, and it really is uh, really special. So I'd encourage you, plug into that. You can do that online. Next week, we'll have a sign-up table in the lobby and everything. I'm sure Scott will be back next week talking all about it, uh, trying to get you guys, hey, let's go, let's do it. And, um, but if you're sitting here today and be like, yeah, I can do that, I encourage you, do it. It's going to be an awesome, awesome thing. So um, I hope you all had a good Christmas. Yeah, okay, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, great, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hope it was good. Our family had a great time. We were celebrating with our, my in-laws down in North Carolina and, um, you know, hoping for some warmer weather. But, of course, like it is every time we head down there to warmer weather, it, like, rains the whole time. So that was great. And, uh, no, we had fun. Um, but did you know that Christmas isn't over? Yeah, Christmas isn't over. As you can see, the poinsettias are still here and alive somehow, and uh, Christmas isn't over. And now, if there's kids here, I'm not saying that you're getting more gifts or anything like that, and, and don't worry, you can put your ugly sweaters away back until next Christmas. You don't need to wear those anymore. But Christmas is not over. It's not done yet. You know that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? First day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree, Right? And it goes on and on. 12 Days of Christmas, we know that song. First of all, uh, that song, too many birds given as gifts. One bird is too many birds, okay? But to have like, how many birds are named in that song is too many birds. Hens and partridges and geese and swans. Who who wants that many birds? Nobody does. Uh, Second of all about that song, uh, the total cost, I looked this up this week. If you were to buy all the gifts listed in the 12 Days of Christmas, day one through day 12, Total cost today in 2023, rounding into 2024, uh, if you were to go and purchase all those gifts, it would cost you, and this this number is very exact, so all the gifts would cost you $46,729.86. That's a lot of money. So, um, and it's true, PNC Bank calculates this every year based on the cost of uh, inflation and all that fun stuff. This is, you can look it up, it's online. So this year, if you were to buy all the gifts, it's just under $47,000. Um, if you love someone that much, good for you. I'm, I'm glad for you guys to have that sort of relationship. Uh, so uh, go for it. And third 12 days of Christmas, it's 12 days. Why 12 days? Well, Christmas isn't over, 12 days. In the more liturgical and historical church traditions, um, uh, Christmas isn't a day, it's a season that includes Advent, and then starting Christmas Day until 12 days later is the Christmas season. Christmas doesn't end this year until this coming Saturday, January 6th, and it ends that day with a, a feast day called Epiphany. Epiphany marks the end of the Christmas season. And Epiphany celebrates the coming of the magi, the wise men, to meet the newborn baby Jesus. It's a story recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2. Epiphany is important. It's an important celebration for many churches. And it has historical significance because it marks Jesus, the Son of God, come to earth. It marks Jesus being revealed... And made known to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, which is represented by the coming of the Magi from their faraway land in the east to meet the baby Jesus. So uh, this week we find ourselves kind of in that weird space, Christmas and New Year's, where time doesn't make sense, right? I'm sure you woke up many days this week wondering what day it was, uh, like I did. And um, so today we're here, it's New Year's Eve. We're going to talk today about this story in Matthew 2, the Magi coming to visit baby Jesus and maybe you're wondering, Matt, well, Epiphany is next week. Why don't you preach on it next week? It's kind of weird you're doing it a week early. Well, simply, I'm not preaching next week. I'm here today. So uh, we're doing it today. Scott will be back next week, I'm sure, with something for us all. But today, we're going to dig into Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to go to the story of the Magi coming to visit Jesus, and uh, we'll talk about it. And as we do, we're going to notice a few things, a few different key players in the story. And I want to press into where these these Characters' hearts are in relationship to the coming and the news of the coming of Jesus. That's sort of revealed by the question they ask, that they ask of the king. So we're going to just get to it now. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. And here we go the story of the Magi here. So it says this After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Excuse me. We'll stop there for a second. So this story takes place sometime after Jesus' birth. We aren't given an exact time frame here in the story other than it says after Jesus was born, this happens. A couple clues from the passage kind of indicate to me that this takes place a little while after Jesus is born, but not too long after Jesus is born. First, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, it says that they're in in Bethlehem. They're still there. They're visiting. And if you remember, Jesus, uh, Mary, and Joseph, they're not from Bethlehem. They're from Nazareth in Galilee, a town a few days journey north. And they've come to Bethlehem because a census was taking place. And this is Joseph's family's uh, historic town. He's from the line of King David. This is where he was from. So they had to travel there. And they're still there. They're still visiting. They haven't left yet. It also says that they're in a house. Nothing is said of a manger, the manger where Jesus was laid after his birth. And um, so they're they're in a house. And it says also uh, that the Magi came from the east, a distant land. They traveled some time to come to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem where they are now to meet the newborn king. So this is a little while after Jesus' birth, but not too long. Not sure the timing matters too much other than Jesus' baby. And maybe this is why 12 days later we celebrate Epiphany. It's a little while after Christmas, but not too long. Kind of makes sense. So who are the Magi? These uh, people who come from the East. Well, it's a little nonspecific, this title, there are closely related terms in other writings that are you know, related to what Matthew uses here, magi, and these terms in the word magi can refer to several different groups of people. It can refer to um, either foreign court dignitaries, you know, higher-ups in uh, foreign governments and courts. It can refer to the priestly class from the land of Persia from around the time of Jesus. It can refer to astrologers or people who are uh, skilled in interpreting dreams. It can even refer to magicians, this term. Now, typically, <clears throat> when that term magi or related terms are used to refer to these type of people in the writings from around the first century when Matthew was writing and when Jesus was born, um, that term is used negatively. It's not a kind term After all, they are pagan magicians or diviners, right? They don't follow the one true God. The term magi is even used in some writings to refer to false prophets. It's not a good term. But here in Matthew, in the story of Jesus, the magi are introduced to us without any sign of disapproval or any negativity. They aren't looked down upon as pagans or false prophets or anything like that. In fact, in this passage... The Magi turn out to be the good guys, which we'll see more as we go. They've come to meet the newborn king, the baby Jesus. And it says they've come to worship him. Guided by a star, which I think shows they have some interest in looking to the sky for signs and wonders. They recognize something significant was happening among the Jews. So from the land they're from to the east, They follow this star knowing that something is happening. Now, it was common practice in the time and and throughout the ages for foreign dignitaries to come and visit um, a king and his kingdom when an heir was born to uh, the king to pay respects and homage to that king and ruler. But the ruler of the Jews at this time is the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And he's ruling through his local governor, titled King Herod. So this newborn king isn't an heir to the current ruler. In fact, he's a new king. He would be a king that supplants and takes over. So this isn't quite a typical visit. But of course, we know that this isn't a typical birth, a typical baby. But not everyone in the story knows that. Let's read on in our passage. We'll go to verse three For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We'll stop there. So we have the Magi and we have this King Herod. Who is Herod? Well, Herod was a half Jewish man who was appointed by the Roman government to govern the region of Judea in the late first century BC. He's also known uh, popularly as Herod the Builder. This guy, Herod, uh, did a lot of building. He built several cities and some of his most notable um, building projects included his own palace called the Herodian, which was located outside of Jerusalem. It's a big hill and on top of this hill is a big palace he built for himself. You can still visit it today, visit the site. He also rebuilt and expanded and renovated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which the Jews called Herod's temple, kind of a negative term. It's not our temple, it's his temple. He got his hands in there. And to fund these building projects, Herod often laid excessive taxes upon the Jewish people uh, on top of what Rome already required, and he would often force the Jewish people to help and be a part of doing the labor to build his designs. But in Herod's mind, he was one of them in many ways. He was half Jewish. He lived among and governed the Jews for a long time. And when Caesar Augustus rose to power, he even defended the Jews to Caesar because after all, the Jews only worshiped one God rather than all the Roman gods. So they were kind of a problem. Herod went to bat for them to Caesar. So in his mind, he was one of them. And going to bat for the Jews actually caused Herod tension with Caesar Augustus. And he saw his relationship with his boss as on edge. And he never really recovered from that. And he became paranoid in his later years that he would, be, uh, he would lose control and lose his uh, kingship, his governorship. So for Herod to hear of a king of the Jews being born would, of course, send Herod into some sort of paranoid spiral. I'm sure he felt betrayed by the people he saw himself as one of, the Jewish people, wanting to supplant him with their own king and his kingship was fragile given his relationship with his boss, Caesar Augustus. So I can't totally blame Herod for feeling disturbed at this news that a newborn king of the Jews has come. Uh, excuse me. I can't totally blame him for that. Um, he's the king of Judea and he hears a, jo- a child's been born who's going to take his job. I think, I think any of us would feel a level of disturbance knowing someone wanted or was coming for our job, Right? In the NIV, which we're reading from today, it says he was disturbed. This word, disturbed. The Greek word there, it's a little more intense than maybe our English word, disturbed. Herod, he wasn't like, oh, that's troubling. That's not how he felt. No, this word disturbed in the Greek really means anxiety to um, become restless. It's that, it's that queasy feeling in your gut, your stomach turning over and over it's dwelling on the worst possible outcome. It's running the scenario over and over again in your mind. Getting worse every time. So I, I can't blame him for that. I can't blame him for that for a few reasons. First, because he believes someone's coming for his job. I think any of us would find that hard. Second, I can't blame him because... When a ruler or king was supplanted or a foreign ruler came over and, and uh, you know, conquered your kingdom, typically that king would not only be put to death, but anyone else who would have a claim to the throne after him, who might cause division among the people, a rebellion would be put to death as well. Kids, grandkids, cousins, everyone would be put to death. Wipe it out, take care of that problem. And that's a reason to be anxious as well. And I think, third, I can't totally blame him because Herod's ruling on behalf of someone else. He's a middleman, he's caught between Caesar and the Jews. And if he loses control of his region, well, he's going to have to answer to someone who's going to have a, <laughs> not a kind response to him in losing the territory. So I don't totally blame Herod for feeling this way. I mean, you've been there before, I'm sure hearing news or a rumor or a plan or something that that's caused you fear and anxiety something outside your control especially when you don't have all the information when there's a personal cost to you that maybe you you can't you know grab the reins fast enough to get control of the situation but there is something I do blame Herod for I blame him for upon hearing this news not asking the right questions we're going to come back to that in a moment so not only was herod disturbed by the news of a newborn king but it says here in the in the passage that all of jerusalem was also disturbed which likely doesn't mean everyone in jerusalem because i think for the common people hearing the news of a newborn jewish king coming to rule and get rome out of there that would have been good news yay no this probably refers to the ruling class of the jewish people the elites the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the teachers of the law, many of whom would have been appointed by Herod himself to have those positions uh, there among the Jews. So that's where I start to assign blame is here is what, uh, that these religious leaders of the Jews, the people who had memorized and studied the scriptures, the, the law of God, the, um, uh, the stories of their history of how God had worked over and over again to rescue them and deliver them, The prophecies about the anointed one, the Messiah who God was promising to send into the world. If anyone should be rejoicing at the news of a newborn king of the Jews, a Messiah that's coming to the world, it should be these guys, shouldn't it? Could it be God's promises are coming true, but they're missing it. They didn't notice the mysterious star in the sky, No, the magi did. They hear the news of a newborn king and what do they do? They're disturbed. They've grown so accustomed to being the ones in charge. They've grown so comfortable with how things are that they've failed to dream about how things could be. Status quo is comfortable. We all find it comfortable. Even if the status quo isn't working well for you, we tend to default to the status quo because simply we know it. We know how to navigate it. We know what day-to-day looks like, even if it's hard. And change, for most of us, is more often than not unwelcome because change means a loss of what is Or it means learning something new, new habits, new rhythms. So we tend to stick to what we know humans do, even if we don't like it. And especially we stick to what we know if we're the ones who are helping the status quo be the status quo. I think that's why many of us will stay at a job we hate longer than we want to. Or we'll stay in a relationship that's just kind of run its course we're too afraid to get Maybe not afraid, but we're not ready to get out because it means change. Or not take the steps to start that business we've been dreaming about. Or not go back to school to get that degree that we've been wanting to get. Because it means change. No more status quo. And we hate that. We hate it. Herod and these religious leaders, they're gonna fight. They're gonna fight to keep the status quo rather than figure out and rejoice in the new thing that God is doing. Sending his son to live and to die for our sins. So I blame them for that because they should have been ready for Jesus's birth. Even Herod, who is half Jewish, who lived among the Jews for a long time, who ruled among the Jews for a long time, you'd think that some of this would have rubbed off on him And where I really blame Herod is for asking the wrong questions. He calls the religious leaders together. He hears the news and he asks, where is the Messiah to be born? Wrong question. Now, even if he asked the right question, I'm not sure this was the right audience because they're all corrupt and frayed just like he is, but at least he would have asked the right question. He even uses the right terminology, the Messiah. So why is this the wrong question? Because the question he asks, where is the Messiah to be born, is a question designed to help him get information about Jesus, not a question to help him know Jesus. He wants to know about the Messiah. He doesn't want to know the Messiah. He's looking for information, not relationship. Now, if Herod had asked something like, hey guys, tell me more about this Messiah, this King of the Jews, perhaps his heart would have been changed, but he doesn't ask that question. Where is the Messiah to be born? He wants information about Jesus and he's gonna use that information to try to take advantage of the situation to keep the status quo. It's the wrong question. And the religious leaders are right there with Herod, in step with where he's at. They want to protect the status quo as well. Things are pretty good for them. These guys have it made, right? They're in the good graces of the guy who's in charge of them. They're living a separate life from all the regular old people. They get to be the boss and walk around town strutting their stuff. They've got it pretty good. Social, political advantage. They're wealthy. They don't want it to change. (coughs) And I think they know that the Messiah, the king, will change everything. I think they know it because these guys know a lot about the Messiah. In fact, they answer Herod's question pretty easily. They quote from the prophet Micah, chapter five, verse two. And here's what uh, it says in Micah, what they quote from. Where's the Messiah to be born? He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They know about the Messiah, the king. But they don't know him. And they don't want to. So now Herod having a little more information filled with anxiety and fear is gonna do what he can to ensure his position and the status quo is kept intact. We'll go to verse seven. Verse seven, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard, had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. We'll stop there. That's what Herod does with the information about the newborn king. He tries to leverage, tries to leverage this information for his own advantage. So he tells in the Magi, he lies to them. I wanna go worship him too. You go find exactly where he is. Come back and tell me. And we're not going to read this part of the story today, what happens next, uh, in verse 13 and after. But Herod wants to kill this baby. His anxiety, his fear now meets with that information. He wants to, he wants to kill a baby. Think about that. The guy wants to kill a baby. He's threatened by a baby. So now uh, this baby is Jesus, right? The eternal son of God who came out of the throne room of heaven and was born a human. He's going to take care of all our sins. But still, he's threatened by a baby. And he still doesn't know all this because he hasn't asked the right question. So in the following passage, when the Magi leave, because he doesn't know the exact location in Bethlehem where the baby is, he takes this information. He knows it's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he has all the baby boys, two years age and younger, he has them all killed in and around the town of Bethlehem. I mean, just unimaginable stuff. Just horrible stuff that this guy does with information about the Messiah. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. So he lies to the Magi, sends them to find the baby. Bethlehem's about five miles south of Jerusalem. The Magi, still guided by the star, they find their way to Bethlehem to where Jesus is. And we'll finish up the last couple verses. Verses 11 and 12, the story ends here. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's the Magi who find the baby Jesus. And it says they bowed down and worshiped him. And this Greek word worship, this can be used to translate, it's like pay homage or respect. Something you would do to an earthly king, you'd come and say hi and you know, kiss the ring and all that stuff. But this word can also uh, be translated rightly as worship, worship of a god, worship of a deity. In fact, the Greek word "proskuneo" is where we get our word prostrate from, lying prostrate, right? With your hands on the ground in that kind of position of humility and worship, bowing down. So they see Jesus for who he is, maybe not fully, maybe not fully, but these magi, they come, they meet him, and they are on their way to knowing him. And I think the gifts that they bring, this newborn Messiah, tell us something about what they believe and what they think about him. The gifts the magi bring to the baby, Jesus, echo the gifts that a king from the past received from a foreign dignitary. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes to King Solomon, David's son, and brings him gifts. And these gifts that the Magi bring echo those gifts from the past. The first one is gold, which I think speaks for itself. I don't have to explain that, hopefully. It's shiny, it's valuable, right? We love it, we love gold. We still like it today. The second is frankincense. Frankincense, it's a, it's a hardened re- tree resin that comes from the Boswellia tree. It's primarily found in Southern Arabia and Eastern Africa. And um, it was used uh, as an expensive perfume and burned uh, as incense, often in worship rituals in different religions, including in the Jewish temple in the worship of God. It was also burned in the homes of people who could afford it, special occasions, smelled nice. It's frankincense. Myrrh, the third gift, was another resin. It was more of a sticky, gum-like resin that came from several types of trees and had multiple uses. It was used medicinally. It was used um, in perfumes and incense. And again, this was an expensive gift, myrrh, not cheap. Myrrh has a special place in Jewish history and religious custom. Myrrh is part of the mix that Moses used and was commanded by God to use to make the anointing oil in Exodus 30. That when the Jewish people built the tabernacle, the movable temple, when they were in the desert, myrrh was part of the anointing oil used to consecrate and make holy the altar and the tent and the lampstand and everything in the temple and to anoint the priests, Aaron and his family, to do their job, set apart, to approach God in his temple. So these gifts of the Magi, they have layers of symbolism. They are indeed gifts of a king and of a priest and, of a, and gifts of worship. And incense was burned inside the temple as a symbol of the offering as it burned on the altar, making its way into heaven closer to the presence of God. Priests, they were anointed with myrrh, gold is gold, right? And from this symbolism, we could draw out a lot of meaning about Jesus, right? Jesus is our king, he's our high priest, Jesus is our um, sacrificial offering that takes care of all of our sins, and all of that is true, but looking at the context here, these magi coming from a foreign land, maybe as dignitaries, who've come to bow down before the newborn king of Judea. Right, There hadn't been a king in Judea in centuries. The last king to sit on the throne was Zedekiah, the last Davidic king whose reign ended 586 years earlier when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and exiled a significant portion of the Jewish population. That's the last time there was a king of Judea, almost 600 years earlier. Now, since then, there had been kings over the Jews, the Babylonians and the Persians, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, now the Romans, they've all been kings over the Jews now, and Herod the Great being the latest local governor, king of Judea, as he calls himself, kings over the Jews so the Magi come from a faraway place to acknowledge and worship this new king of the Jews. Not king over the Jews, but king of the Jews. A Jewish king. And this Jewish king would not just be a threat to Herod's power and his fragile ego. And to the ruling class of the Jews who are there uh, ruling with Herod. But it's, it's something that could upset the whole world. A kingdom hasn't existed here in 600 years. No one sat on that throne in 600 years. It's a kingdom that many would count as lost to the ages. 600 years is a long time. And yet through the centuries, God, and long before David even, and the kings after him, God had promised a coming king. And through the centuries, God had promised a coming prophet like Moses. God had promised an anointed priest. God had promised a new man would come and lead us in a new way. Not in the same way that the first man, Adam, led us into sin and death. But a new man who would lead us to light and life forever. God's promises over millennia are coming true in the birth of this child. And these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, fitting for a king, fitting for a priest and a prophet... And whether Magi knew it or not ahead of time, it doesn't matter. They didn't have to know about Jesus before knowing Jesus and acknowledging who he is. They didn't have to get it right, get all the information beforehand, making a decision about who this child was, even as a baby. No, they recognized it. They went down, saw him, met him, and knew him, and bowed down before him and worshipped. didn't fear that this was going to change the status quo or ultimately render their own religion completely irrelevant they got to see the promised one of God the Messiah the king of the Jews and the king of the universe now Herod and the religious leaders they knew all about the Messiah but they didn't make any attempt to know him And isn't that like us so often? We ask the wrong questions of the king. There's a subtle difference between the question that the Magi ask about the Messiah and the question that Herod asks about the Messiah. Very subtle difference. Herod asks, (coughs) where is the Messiah to be born? It's information about the Messiah. Where is he gonna be born? The Magi ask, this was their question when they come to Jerusalem, Where is the one who has been born, king of the Jews? Magi's question presupposes who he is, and they want to meet him. Herod's question is simply a matter of fact. Where is he going to be born? One question seeks information, the other question seeks truth. How like us? I think from Christians and non-Christians alike, too many of us are satisfied simply knowing about Jesus. And knowing about Jesus doesn't cost you anything. But knowing Jesus, man, that'll cost you everything. Knowing about Jesus is comfortable. But when that knowledge bumps up against our own fear and anxiety or the desire for power and control, like Herod, that knowledge can be used to manipulate and becomes dangerous. I engage on social media. I don't post a lot, but I see things and I see it all the time. People will use trivial pieces about Jesus and his life and what he said to try to either make a point or co opt Jesus for their own cause. And it's used. To manipulate people to manipulate people either into maintaining a status quo or to dismantling and starting a new status quo i see it all the time people using jesus name invoking his name to say something like well if you really believe jesus or believe in jesus you should know this about him and therefore do this and i'm not going to cite any examples because i don't want to you know offend anybody but i see it from all angles these kinds of things So, I encourage you, friends, be wary of this and question those things when you see it or no matter who it's coming from. Because more often than not, it's coming from the same place that Herod came from. Now, maybe they're not looking to murder a whole generation of children. (laughs) Hope not. But it's used to manipulate, control anxiety and fear into doing something for their benefit. And God's people have always dealt with this kind of thing. This is not new for us today. The early church certainly dealt with it. And the apostles worked hard to make sure people really knew Jesus, knew him well. So that when those people came to talk about Jesus and use their knowledge of him to manipulate into a certain cause or something, they they could see the truth and resist it. In fact, here's what Peter wrote about these people in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2. (coughs) He writes, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Knowing about Jesus doesn't really get us anywhere. And anyone who would use facts about Jesus to manipulate others and lead them in any way other than towards Jesus, well, as Peter says, it's not gonna go and purpose and freedom from sin, uh, be careful. And what about, what about you? Do you really know Jesus? Or are you content just knowing about Jesus? Because knowing about Jesus doesn't cost you anything other than filling your brain with some information. Knowing about Jesus might make you look smarter or able to win a few arguments. It might even bring you some opportunities in the church to teach a class or lead or do some things. Knowing about Jesus, it's not bad. It's just, it's incomplete. But knowing Jesus, asking the right questions, who he is, where he is, how can I see him? Like the Magi, that's, that is life-changing stuff. Take it from the Apostle Paul, who in his early life knew a lot about Jesus. Paul was a, Paul was a defender of the status quo, we'll say. The Roman government, the Jewish elites, and he was one of them. He was a Pharisee. He was one of them. He knew about Jesus and Jesus' followers, and he knew they were disruptors of the way things were, and his goal was to stop it and to stop them but then he got to know Jesus. And you can read this in Acts chapter nine, the story of Paul meeting Jesus. He was blinded, literally blinded by the truth of knowing Jesus. And then he spent some time with Jesus' followers in their homes, was cared for by them, was prayed for by them, was taught by them. He got to know Jesus, like really know Jesus. And it changed his life. Here's what Paul says about it later in his life. What he says about knowing Jesus as he writes to the Philippian church from a prison cell. It's Philippians 3. This is a man who had his life changed by knowing Jesus. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus or for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness and that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Jesus will change your life. Or are you content knowing about Jesus? Gathering some information has no real bearing on how you live or think or engage, has no bearing on what your future holds. You can go on living the way you have, dealing with problems the way you have and and everything else. or, Or you can get to know Jesus. Ask the right questions of the king. And when you get to know him, your life won't be the same as it was. I promise you that. And I don't mean life is full of roses and constant happiness. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you will have a new and real purpose. You will have a real abiding love. You will have a future that will not end. And you have someone whose presence is always with you as you walk through life's ups and downs. Or are you content knowing about him? Well, you can get to know him. We have the opportunity to finish 2023 and start 2024. You have the opportunity to have your life changed. Knowing Jesus is uh, it's the greatest joy of my life. And I know many of you in this room can say the same thing not because knowing Jesus means my life is good all the time, but it means I have, like I said, that constant presence and power of God with me in all the good and hard times. And because I know Jesus, I have hope for the future because no matter how hard things get or how hard dark things look, or I know it's all going to be okay because the promises of God are true for me. Through my faith in Jesus, if you want to get to know Jesus and move beyond knowing about Him, start this new year in a new way. Here's what I here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're sitting here and that's resonating with you, and you say, "Yeah, I think I think I'm in," <clears throat> here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, we have a tool at our church. We call it the Connect Card. So if you're sitting here, again, if, if this is where you're at, here's what I want you to find this tool. In the lobby at both of our campuses, on the info desk, and here at Essex and a few other places, we have a hard copy. We also have one online. So whatever's easier for you, I'll encourage you to do this. Let's start with the online one. Around the church and in the pews, there's a little plaque that has a QR code on it. If you scan that with your phone, you open it up, it'll take you to the Connect card, and you can fill out there and check, you know, I want to follow Jesus, want to get to know him. Submit that online and someone will follow up with you this week. It'd probably be me. And we'll have a conversation, celebrate together. Say, what does this mean? What does it look like? You do the same with this. You find this in the lobby. You can go out to the info desk, just fill it out there. You can click the box on there, write your name. We'll follow up with you again this week. Probably me, someone else maybe. Have a conversation. Say, what does this mean? What does it look like? And you can just leave that there on the info desk, to connect. This is a tool we have for a lot of things and and this is one of them. It's a way for us to know where you're at, for us to engage together. And as you decide, yeah, I wanna get to know Jesus, I wanna move into that space, we could do that together. So I encourage you, take advantage of that. Fill that out, whether it's online or in person. Uh, Fill that out. Jesus is someone you want to know. I promise you that. Trust me. You know, the Magi met him. Herod wanted him to come back and tell him where he was. Because Herod wanted to go kill him. And he lied to the Magi about that. But when they went to meet the baby Jesus and got to know him and worship him, God encountered them and said, hey, don't go back to Herod. So they didn't. They went home another route. They met the baby Jesus, they got to know him and God met them there. (laughs) And when we come to meet Jesus, not just know about him, but to know him, God meets us there and that will change things for you, I promise you. But that change is not something to be scared of, it's not something to dread, it's not something that is bad. In fact, it's good because Jesus is good. And I don't think there's anyone who follows Jesus and who knows him in this room or anywhere that I've met in this whole planet that regrets getting to know the Messiah because he is good and he has your best in mind. So friends, happy end of 2023. Maybe that's the best way to say it. (laughs) Not happy 2024, but happy end of 2023. But let's start 2024. Pursuing Jesus together, this church family, getting to know him. And if you want to be in on that journey with us, connect card and we'll we'll get moving together. Would you stand, let's pray as we end our morning. Um, Lord, I'm reminded of the humility that it took for the God of the universe to become a dirty. Frail, fragile human, because we humans aren't, uh, you know, (laughs) we're not the greatest from time to time. But God, you entered into our space to bring us closer into your space. You became a baby so that we could have eternal life with you. God, help us hold on to that truth as we end this year and we kick off 2024. A year that I hope is filled with hope and joy and purpose and excitement and energy. A year that sees a renewed commitment for many of us to getting to know you in new and deeper ways. A year, Lord, where we stop protecting the status quo and start going after your promises for us and our life and our eternity. So Lord, help us know you this day and in these days. And God, would you propel us forward into 2024 with a renewed sense of hope and joy and purpose in you and through you and for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Happy New Year. Enjoy, uh, yeah, enjoy the last moments of 2023. See you later.